listening to the Astral Hour. I'm your host, Astral Meadow. Join me as we take a glimpse into the mysterious. Welcome everyone. Today I'm joined once again with my husband, Justin. This will be part one of a two-part series focused around the Hermetic Principles and the Kabbalion. In this first part, we will be discussing some of the history on where the Hermetic Principles originate and give a little background on the author of this book while also exploring Hermeticism in general. In part two, we will be discussing each principle individually and find relatable ways to work with these principles and how to connect with them in a deeper way. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm happy to be back. I, uh, I've really enjoyed studying for this episode, as I have all of the ones I've been on so far. And of course, I guess indirectly, I study with you on all subjects, which is yeah. awesome. I enjoy that too. But I've really enjoyed uh, digging into hermeticism and the hermetic principles. And uh, I find that I resonate with it and and it's probably what I believe at this point as well. So <laughs> I feel like for you specifically, it's important because as a Gemini rising, your chart ruler is Mercury. So as we have explored some of this, you know, mercurial wisdom, I feel like it actually has benefited you in more ways than even someone that maybe doesn't have Mercury in such a powerful uh, position in their chart. I, I could definitely see that. I've always been a little drawn towards Mercury and and that whole vibe. I, communication in general, I've always enjoyed. But yeah, it, it's it's been fascinating to to study along and especially learn more about Hermes and and Thoth and all of these characters. Um, it's just right up my alley. Or Thoth. Or so Thoth. Bef- before we get started, <laughs> that's true. Before we get started. There's this funny thing when working with Hermes mm-hmm. <laughs> because he is quite the trickster. And <laughs> it's funny because with the word Thoth, Thoth, Toth, <laughs> I'm telling you, I've heard, I've probably heard at least six different pronunciations of that word. And everyone that uses this word seems to think that theirs is the correct way. But honestly, we don't really know because some of the... Um, the language has been lost over time. So I, I mean, think it's all, you know, valid. And um, with the word trismegistus, mm-hmm. which we'll also go into later, some people say trismegistus. I mean, it's just funny with all this, the words, the word play, and like <laughs> it's kind of a, you almost well, have to just like put your ego aside and be like, whatever happens whatever we say is meant to be said that way and not overanalyze just the the phonetics of the name thoth right well i mean we we watched that video with that uh rabbi professor uh, and he he broke down the name and it was like a 20 minute video of him explaining and by the end he was like so in conclusion nobody really knows how it's pronounced so it could be any of them and all of them and it's all acceptable we're like, oh, right. okay. Well, that it's was. It's all just semantics. Yeah. Okay. So, it, so I guess we need to talk preference. about why we're talking about um, Hermes and Thoth and all of that. So. Yeah. So I guess we'll start at the beginning. It's always, <laughs> always the best place. Uh, so, what exactly is Hermeticism? What are we talking about? All right. So, Hermeticism is a philosophical and religious system. It's based on the teachings of. Hermes Trismegistus, um, and is a Hellenistic blending of the Greek god Hermes and the Egyptian god Thoth. So towards the end of like the Egyptian era and leading into more of that Greco-Roman influence, these two deities got synchronized together, which is actually something that happens a lot um, over the course of history because it's just a natural part of our evolution Mm -hmm. all dynasties have a beginning and an ending Um, but the information that we gathered through that time period isn't fully lost as it sort of merges and evolves into that next phase 
these teachings contain the various writings attributed to Hermes, um, known as the Hermetica, which was produced between 300 BCE and 1200 CE. Hmm. It can also refer to a wide variety of philosophical systems, um, which generally are associated with Hermes. So, Hermes Trismegistus. Let's talk about him just a little bit. It's an awesome name. So, I asked the records because there is so much that's sort of veiled with this character. And, you know, a lot of people are like, is this, was this person even real? You know, with a lot of myths, <laughs> we know that we don't always have to take myths as fact that they are living stories and there's hidden wisdom within them okay mm. so for this i actually relied on the records to answer my question because if i ask this question on the internet i get all sorts of convoluted funny cool things which is just merging you know information on thoth and hermes which we'll go into both of those um deities a little bit more here soon but um so the records i asked who is hermes trismegistus and they answered Similar to King Arthur, there are many legends and myths that have been passed down over time. This character has evolved beyond his original form and continues to work with humanity from beyond the earth plane. He has taken multiple forms over time, hint the thrice great. These different incarnations have been syncretized and blended into a singular concept, but can be understood deeper by also studying his main incarnations separately being Moses, Thoth, and Hermes. So this was interesting because I didn't really know the Moses thing, but it made more sense when I was thinking about him and the Ten Commandments and the tablets and, hmm. you know, literally channeling the wisdom of the spiritual realm down into the earth plane, right? Which makes so much sense. Um, going on, all of these figures have made a huge impact on humanity over time. The legends have glamorized him, but such is necessary for his story to be passed down and remembered. So then I asked, is he connected to the planet Mercury? And they said, yes. Before his Earth incarnations, he spent much time mastering the mercurial energy, which he was to bring down into the Earth plane. There are various beings who have done this with all the planetary energies. It's as if they are a full embodiment of the planet manifested in a physical form. There have been many of these incarnations and their stories lost over time, but some remain deeply ingrained within the collective consciousness. So I was like, whoa, um, that's really cool. When we work with the records, we get even more of a, a bigger picture. Right of sort of like the beyond energy too, like not just, oh, these are historical facts, but this is like bigger than that, right? right? It's bigger than just saying, okay, on this date, this book was written and it covered this. You know, it's like, this is like a grand story. Right. So, yeah. Also with Hermes, like the thrice great could refer to his mastery over the three planes, which would be physical, mental, and spiritual. Um, he combined the knowledge of these planes, and he acts as a bridge between the material and the divine. So when we're studying like these myths, some of the things that Thoth and Hermes have in common, like one of the big things is the psychopomp role, which is helping souls to be able to cross over. They're able to go into the underworld. They're able to go into the heavens, the above, the below, um, and they act as like a messenger between these realms and not all of the deities can do that. So this is actually a special role right. that they have specifically. Um, there is a goddess, um, Iris, <laughs> who is also sort of a feminine form of this psychopomp role. Right. So I always picture, uh, Hermes as the, uh, animated version from Disney's Hercules. Yeah. It's hard to get that <laughs> out of your head. It's hard, but, you but know, it is a caricature. Like he has like his winged good. helmet. He has those winged shoes. He has the caduceus. So you know, if that's and if that's your intro into like visualizing him, then that's cool. Yeah, and you know, uh, he's a trickster, and so he does have kind of a little attitude about him, I think. But as we found, it's it's usually 
or it's always for your benefit, for your, your good. And so even though he's, he might seem like a trickster or like doing stuff that that's bothering you, it actually turns out to be for your best interest. <laughs> yeah. I kind of love his trickster role and it has manifested in a lot of other forms. So I think about Loki a lot when I think of the trickster form. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have tricksters and like Native American mythologies and things like that. And I think all of this is the same. Well, that was theme. when we were talking <laughs> to the records, they, uh, they said that it was, that uh, it's the same being that the Native Americans referred to as coyote. Mm-hmm. And they use that that word and that term. Right, to, if it, with his silly stories. Mm-hmm. But something I've noticed in a lot of these myths um, is that these tricks bring about <laughs> the necessary like tools or materials that this person needed that they wouldn't have had had this trick not been played on them. Right. So like Thor wouldn't have had his hammer without Loki playing tricks <laughs> on him. Um, I also think about if you think about the birth of Hermes, you know, just I think it's five days after he's born. He's already playing tricks on his brother with the, the whole cattle yeah. um, myth. But to make up for it, he gives him the lyre and thus bringing music um, into existence so how cool you know that his little trick you know brings about that and so as much as it's easy to sort of fall into like i don't know kind of wanting to curse mercury sometimes because you're like stop playing these tricks on me Mm -hmm. if we can take a few steps back we can see where sometimes we are taking things too seriously or sometimes we're on a path that isn't leading to the place that would be best for our soul unfoldment. Mm-hmm. So he's going to detour that um, and help you get back onto the path. So sometimes it seems like, oh, he set me up. Right. But usually if you give it some time, you can kind of laugh with him. He's very witty. He's very funny um, a lot of times. And find the humor in it and say thank you, right? Because I really did need a new computer. So thank you for... <laughs> right. You know, that crash during the last Mercury retrograde. <laughs> and even though it was super inconvenient, this is, I'm actually in a better spot now right. than I was before. Right. Because my old computer would glitch or this or that. Right, because we might have been too attached to something. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, it, it might have actually been making life more difficult. And we might have not moved on because we were so connected to, you know, the idea of this thing going a certain way or like connected to the overly connected to an object or something that might be, you know, removed and then something better can come in to fill its place. So, um, Hermes is the son of Zeus. This is some things I noticed, which would be different with Hermes and Thoth is that Thoth is sort of self born. They say some myths say he was born out of the lips of Ra at the beginning of creation. Um, and this would make him known as like the God without the mother. And in a different story, he is self-created at the beginning of time. And as the Ibis lays the cosmic egg that holds all creation. But even though in, as Hermes, he has a mom, I think it's Mia and Zeus. He has parents. Mm -hmm. Um, and he is the brother to Apollo. But in the Egyptian myth, he is self-created, but he's still deeply associated with Ra um, and the concept of divine order and justice. So even though the myths come across differently, there's still this play between, you know, the sun Mm -hmm. and Mercury. So in the Egyptian mythology, Thoth is associated with the moon. He's the god of the moon, which is very interesting because I feel like that kind of, that particular detail gets lost. Um, You know, like he evolves out of that. Um, So in astrology, um, Mercury is never more than 28 degrees from the sun. They're very much like interconnected within that realm as well. Um, So it's kind of cool that it carries over into all these different myths, which is this relationship between the sun and Hermes or Thoth. I think so they're deeply connected across history. I, I think Mercury is probably one of the clearest uh, depictions of a planet and it's, you know, godlike personified 
counterpart uh, because you know Mercury's right up, little small thing right next to the sun. It's just zipping around, flying around the sun real quick right. compared to all the other planets, which are much bigger, much slower. And here's this this heavenly body that's just just zipping around, and uh, it totally makes sense. It totally matches up with his personification. Right, and, and when when we think of thought, I mean, it's like an instant. Mm-hmm. Right. We have a thought. It, come, it seems to come out of nowhere. It's so quick. And then sometimes it can leave just as quick as it came. And so this yeah. is sort of the flightiness, the, the quickness of thought. So we look at these things and we'll study this when we look at some of the principles as above, so below. Mm-hmm. So we can look at this deity as something in the sky, as above us, as some great scheme playing out in the heavens. But it's also as below within us. And so Mercury is very much a part of us because every time we have a thought, like that, we are vibrating at that same frequency. And so we have it within us. So these thoughts, when thoughts arise, where does it, you know, that's, that's mercurial energy that is connecting, you know, traveling through the nervous system, giving us these fleeting ideas, giving us inspiration, you know, giving us the ability to communicate our thoughts, giving us the ability to reason and absorb the wisdom around us. Um, Mercury is also associated with writing. So all the poetry, writing music, um, you know, writing fiction, telling stories, all of that is connected with Mercury. So when studying the Hermetic texts, they are usually divided into two categories. We have the philosophical side, which focuses mostly on the philosophy and ideas and then the technical side which is going to have more of a focus on things like alchemy magic potions and astrology the kabbalion would be more of an example of like the philosophical aspect it's filled with a bunch of axioms there's lots of you know kind of mental exercises within it that you can utilize to understand it in that way and then with this technical side um we have all sorts of fun stuff um, of like, how can we actually work with this Um, tangible ways to work with it. And um, one of the big guys that I really love to study and talk about, um, he was uh, very much into both sides of viewing this would be Ficino. So, uh, Ficino lived from 1433 to 1499. He was an Italian scholar and a Catholic priest. He was one of the most influential humanist philosophers of the early Renaissance. He was also an astrologer, reviver of Neoplatonism, and the first to translate Plato's work into Latin. Ficino is such an interesting character <laughs> to me because he's literally a priest. He's like ingrained into the church but he's like obsessed with magic. He's like mm-hmm. really into astrology. He really wants to study this ancient wisdom because he actually believed that it was sort of the origin of Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, that these, you know, they're called Serapis priests. Um, we can get into the whole cult of Serapis. Um, had actually predicted the birth of Jesus, you know, and you think about like the Magi, I mean, that's, those are magicians, right? right? And yeah, so that he, gets was, overlooked he a lot. was starting to see like <laughs> that there was this interconnection with some of this wisdom that was coming out of Egypt mm-hmm. that actually correlated with some of the, the Christian texts. So he actually tried to sort of um, like merge the two together and... Mm-hmm. You know, I think it worked for him. I think he was able to make enough connections to make it work. Um, Let's talk for a minute about the cult of Serapis. So um, the cult of Serapis is something that comes out of Egypt. It is based around the the death of Osiris. Um, It's a wisdom cult, and it's very similar to the Jesus, because when we look at this Osiris myth, is he was killed by his brother, and then... Thoth works with Isis to help revive him and bring him back. That's very much like Jesus, you know, being resurrected. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's like already a similarity right there. Um, 
So this allowed Ficino to sort of look at, okay, Christianity was just a slightly modified continuation of this Serapis cult. Um, he believed that John the Baptist and Jesus were priests of this cult. Um, and it's very interesting that John the Baptist was Florence's patron saint, which is the city that he was based around in. Um, and this is this is Ficino that believed that John right, the Baptist was Right, and I Jesus wanted to were, read this. That's interesting. Okay, so here's a little section that I just found so interesting. Um, this is an article written by Philip Copens. It's titled The Corpus Hermeticum. Um, which is one of the um, books that Ficino translated into Latin. Mm. Okay, he was responsible for that. Anyways, in this article, it talks about the Serapis cult. So it should be noted that they had nothing against Jesus, who they after all considered to be have been a Serapist priest. Their problem was with what had become of his church and its dogma, which was not in line with Jesus or the Serapis teaching. Rather than a wisdom cult, Christianity was a dogmatic cult. So I think they they noticed this. I think that they were devout, but I think they started noticing it as they were spending all this time studying it, having a deep relationship with their creator they were like okay the dogma is not lining up would this have been in the renaissance yes so rather than attack they redefined they started working from within Mm. all right and so he you know he was uh called out a couple times for like okay heresy but he was always able to dial it back to i'm just studying the people that predicted the birth of jesus i just want to know but i think deep down he had a thirst for knowledge. I think he could see that there was something deeper going on here and that he wanted to know more about it. And he, he utilized this, the technical aspect, mm-hmm. okay, of the Hermetica. Um, there's a book called The Picatrix. And this is full of technical information on how to make talismans um, based on certain planetary alignments and all this. I have a copy of it. It's extremely challenging to read. And if you are not well-versed in alchemy and astrology, you're probably not going to be able to understand it, which is a big part of this kind of information because it's almost like intentionally veiled. Yeah. And if you're not an initiate, you're not going to, it's going to sound like gibberish. Right. right? So he worked with this um, with many artists uh, the most notable being Sandro Botticelli. Mm-hmm. He used this hermetic application when painting the Minerva and the Centaur, the birth of Venus, and the Primavera. So this is a practical application of magic, making a complex talisman <laughs> into these paintings. Um, it, and they were arranged in a way to transmit healthy, rejuvenating, anti-Saturn qualities. Wow. Ficina's okay. very... <laughs> Uh, has a weird relationship with Saturn. And he, in his chart, he was dominated by Saturn. And think I think that around this time, we viewed Saturn through a very dark lens. I get it. He's very serious planet. Um, sometimes his lessons are harsh. And, you know, <laughs> so, you know, we're I'm working hard myself to find beauty with, with Saturn. So I understand, like, the people that are just, like, trembling. Um, in those properties so you know all the paint and like the timing of the painting and the concept he was working with these artists to bring down this planetary energy and store it within these paintings and then everyone that's looking at these paintings (laughs) is going to be inspired right they're gonna it's gonna speak to them in a way you know that reading like the philosophical aspect might not so you can feel so much through painting that you can't through, you know, studying it. It's so interesting that there were so many people during the Renaissance that were trying to infuse so much knowledge and uh, and hidden um, information into their paintings. And like to uh, they were trying to el- elicit these big universal feelings and downloads. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, you've got Da Vinci and, and all of these other people that that are very clearly um, painting with this information in their minds. 
Right. And there's all sorts of hidden meaning. Definitely with Da Vinci, we, we could study that for, you know, months and still not fully understand it. Um, but if you study some of these hermetic principles, if you start studying just hermeticism in general, it actually opens your mind up to being able to make some sense of why, you know, why did he paint it this way? And like, why were there 12? And why, you know, like, is there the grail on the table? You know, there's all these, these things that you might not notice. Right. Right. Yeah. It's while I was listening to you kind of talk about Ficino, it, it dawned on me that we are, we are so blessed and we have to be so grateful to these small handful of men throughout history that have done this work to pass this knowledge on through to us. Cause you just get a couple here or there, every couple centuries or something that, that put in this work and they probably go up against strict, um, you know, uh, authority trying to tell them not to and, and all of this. And it's not like you've got hundreds or thousands of people doing this. You, you literally just have one or two, every couple of centuries or every Mm -hmm. couple of years or something. And then you have someone else a couple years later that'll translate that. Right. And then hundred years later, someone else. Literally we could count on a hand, the number of people that have helped pass this information from ancient Egypt to us now. And we have to be so grateful for those people doing that. It's so wild. Their lives. Yeah. To get us this information. And, you know, I've really been meditating on this. Um, which is, you know, a cult being like hidden and secret. And there's a part of me that just hates that. I'm like, I want everybody, mm-hmm. everybody to be able to learn stuff like this. That's going to help them, you know, with the self-realization and mastery and, you know, return the, their power to mm-hmm. them. But I also understand why it had to be secret. Mm-hmm. And you think about Ficino, if he hadn't have done it exactly how he had done it, he would have just been excommunicated, executed. All of his uh, work would have been burned and right. it wouldn't have been passed on. So he had to play this game mm-hmm. and he was an insider, you know, um, and I think he had motives beyond <laughs> what we know. And I can't possibly know everything about him. This is just how I feel when I was studying his story. I'm just like, wow, this guy was awesome in a lot of ways. Um I think you get that with a lot of the 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 famous people um, back then that had great discoveries. Um, I don't know, you know, a lot of the history off the top of my head as well. Um, but I, you know, wasn't Newton and some of these other people like they were they were being fought against by the church and and by the the authority because they were presenting ideas that went against them. Um, and another thing that I I heard last night that I did not know. Um, when we talk about Thoth from uh, Egypt, he is famous for his emerald tablet, which mm-hmm. you may have heard before. And I did not know that the first person to translate Thoth's emerald tablet into Latin was or Newton. English, into English. Into English, yeah, was, was Newton. Mm-hmm. Isaac Newton was the one who did that. And that kind of blew my mind. Because, you know, and I assume that's probably one of the reasons that he was <laughs> so hated and well, he was an alchemist. Right. And I think some of it he was trying to, you know, work with, like, taking it very literally. But mm-hmm. we know that with alchemy as, you know, you can make it, like, literal, I guess. But it's more of an inner, you know, transformation that we're focused on when we're looking at this from, like, a spiritual lens. We're not actually trying to turn lead into gold. And I think right. that, honestly, the whole, oh, they're trying to turn lead into gold thing, which is you know, symbolic right. was something to turn people away from studying it. Cause it makes them look like an idiot. You know, like <laughs> what, what idiot thinks that they can do that? So it's like, Oh, this conspiracy guy. Right. And this has always happened throughout history. These people that are interested in some of this stuff, uh, they kind of get mocked and ridiculed for it. They have to hide the mm-hmm. fact that they're talking about it and that sucks, but it's just not for the masses. It, you know, esoteric, it's like for the few. Well, that was uh, one of the things that I learned as well studying this that I didn't catch. Um, if you read uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, um, evidently in there, one of the ways that uh, Victor Frankenstein gets ridiculed 
mm-hmm. by the townspeople is he's reading hermetic literature and they're like, mm-hmm. oh, you silly, you're just reading that nonsense, that's superstitious n- craziness. Right. And like, that's a huge literary book right there that's showing you how the public would just make fun of people that believed in hermetic ideas. Right. And to me, you know, maybe I, I shouldn't take it to, oh, it's a conspiracy, but it feels like a conspiracy. It feels like at some point in history, there mm-hmm. was specific people that found this and they know how to use magic and they know all about astrology and they know all about hermeticism. They know all... All the stuff, you know, that had been passed down from ancient Egypt, they know what Atlantis is. Mm-hmm. They don't want you to know it. And so they actually set yeah. it up to where in your, you know, as soon as you hear that trigger word, you're like, oh, that's stupid. Oh, that's a conspiracy. I'm not going to go there. That's insane. Like, that's a, a dead end. Right. But if we don't know how to work with this, then we become like victims in this game. But once you have the keys to self-mastery mm-hmm. and you know how to utilize magic and you know what magic really is, right? You can take your power back and you now become a player. Right. You're not just a piece on the chessboard. Now you have your own game, your own reality, and you rule over that reality. Yeah. Right. But I really think that they want that slave race thing. If you know who you are, if you know you're a badass, you know, basically god in human form if you know that then you're not going to work these like slave jobs yeah right you're going to be more content you know raising your family and studying the spiritual truths and working on you know like self-mastery and stuff like that so i think to some extent the you know higher ups that are using this actually against the public with mind control and manipulation and things like that they don't want us to understand it because when we all stand up, the chessboard falls and all the pieces, they yeah. can't control us anymore. Right. Well, we can, we have the power to, to make whatever world we want. Um, and if we don't realize that, then we just continue helping them make the world they want. Right. Somebody's making a world that they want and it's mm-hmm. either you or somebody above you, somebody's doing it and you're either helping them or you're making your own. Right. Uh, you know, one way or the other. So something else with Ficino, um, and one of the reasons that he pursued this is like, he actually believed that Jesus was a magician. And so he was like, well, if Jesus was doing these miracles, mm-hmm. if Jesus, you know, was literally his birth was like <laughs> foreshadowed, like it was prophesized, right. all of these divination things that we're told are evil are all in the Bible. Jesus is laying on hands. He's healing. He's doing alchemy. He's doing all sorts of stuff. So I think that. You know, he felt called to be like Jesus. And mm-hmm. that is why he became a magician, because he actually believed that that was really what, you know, the whole Christ story was all about. Mm-hmm. It was an alchemical story. It was about rising above the material plane, you know, and being able to transmute things into something else. Like if something's undesirable, we can change it into something more desirable through transmutation. Right. And this is such a powerful metaphor that can actually be used, you know, with our self-awareness exercises. Like as we are evolving, you know, as people, we can actually change certain aspects of ourselves. If we don't like something, we don't have to be a slave to it. So right. even when, you know, thinking about things like astrology, like, you know, the transits are happening. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you're aware of them, then you can work with that energy, right? And you can say, you know, I know that this is going to happen or something around this is going to happen. So I'm going to do something different. Right. Because you have like insight into it. And so this is why I feel like, they didn't want you to know any of that, right? right? And thinking too about like, you know, these accesses in astrology and like the light and shadow attributes of things. Like if we're really studying ourselves and we are looking at, okay, I'm an Aries sun. I know I'm impatient. All these negatives about, you know, the Aries energy. Um, if we know the light and dark aspects of something, then we through, you know, uh, this is the principle of polarity can actually lean in mm-hmm. to the right. other side of it and manifest the highest form 
of that sign. But if we don't know what the signs are, we don't know that what astrology is. We don't know how to work with it. It's just some, you know, occult doc- like Right. It's literally just it's so disempowering not to understand. Yeah. It is. How it's impacting us and it's happening around us, but we get to choose. Right. right. Because we know. But if you don't know, then you're just getting drilled with some of these transits because you're not going to know, OK, I probably need to make some sacred space right now. Right. Well, you know, using Mercury, which we're currently in a Mercury retrograde and, you know, you and I talk about astrology and this stuff all the time. So we're constantly aware of what's happening. But because of that, whenever I have a program on the computer that doesn't load or whenever the you know, the software just crashes or whenever I say something to you or someone else in the family or something and they don't hear it right. Um, instead of getting real upset or, you know, bothered or, or something, I am able to, to pretty quickly remind myself that, you know, we're in mercury retrograde, things <laughs> like this happen. And it keeps me from letting it overwhelm me. Right. Um, I, you know, just trying to upload the last episode of the podcast, uh, one of the programs that I use just wouldn't open. I have no idea why. And instead of getting upset or letting it bother me, I just shifted to a different program. Right. And it opened just fine in that. And I just kept going and I just completely relate it back to, well, that was probably Mercury retrograde. Like, right. don't let it bother you, you know, but if you weren't thinking that way and you didn't know about Mercury retrograde and what that <laughs> might entail, then you might instantly get fired up and be like oh my god wasn't this working and you know right and it can totally overwhelm you and that's just a small area and it's funny that it's mercury and that's what we're talking about right but that's one of the examples you know just by knowing about it it can help you it doesn't keep it from happening right but you can you remind yourself like oh yeah yeah this is part of it i don't I have need to back off i don't have to react right or right. it's I not going to control me. i can react in a different way that is more desirable to my higher purpose Right. You know, or I can, you know, work with it um, and be like, okay, this way of communicating isn't working. Right. I need to alter my communication and try it a different way mm-hmm. or try a different piece of tech or slow down. Sometimes right. you get going too fast. It all helps to remind you of <laughs> it's it. It's funny because like you're just sitting here talking. I'm trying not to jump ahead and talk about the principles too much yet. <laughs> and hard. I'm just there in your story. They're everywhere. You know, the principle of vibration, like. You're starting, you can feel yourself getting mm-hmm. flustered because that is what's occurring in that moment. You can feel it, mm-hmm. but you can choose right. to keep your vibration in place where with what you want. You don't actually have to start screaming and hollering and throw your laptop. Right, exactly. You can say, I'm really frustrated right now. You know, I'm going to try to focus on what I can control. Mm-hmm. Right. And not let yourself just be like this victim of the circumstance. Right. And that's one of the things that I think if you're going to play out the idea that uh, there are forces at work that don't want us to be empowered, they want those frustrated feelings. They want us to feel mm-hmm. helpless. Right. Because that keeps us in a low vibration. Right. And, and it, we cannot access the higher wisdom, the higher self, when we are slow and depressed and in fear and frustrated and, and pissed. I think there's nothing we can do about it. It and, literally yeah. keeps us in such a dense place that we can't rise above that physical plane at all. And we're not connecting to our spiritual self. All right. Right. And what can we do? What can we work with to hack these physical material things? This is where... Mercury comes back in mm. because we ha- we can affect them with our thought, with our mind. Right. So we're like, physically, this is happening. But mentally, I'm going to choose not to respond. Right. I- and then the mind acts as a bridge to the, the spiritual self. And it says, what does my higher self want? Mm-hmm. But without the mind, you can't get there. Right. You but- have to work your way up. But- so the physical plane... <laughs> You know, in a way, it can feel a lot like hell, right? And this is like when you think of the cross that Jesus is crucified on. You know, the cross is like mind over matter. Right. And so you're stuck in this density. You're stuck in this material plane. How do you get out? Mind. And then when you start working on the mind and you change the way you're thinking, you start changing the, the books that you're reading. You start changing 
what you're how you're speaking about yourself you see then you start rising above the mind into the higher spheres the spirit into the spirit yeah and now all three of these things can work together and we can be fully embodied our spiritual self our mental self and our physical self are now merged and that's exactly how hermes or mercury uh goes between the lower world and the upper world right just in like in the myths i mean that's exactly what he does right he travels between right and a lot of the you know in the emerald tablets the the ones that were translated by the Doriel figure and i don't exactly know Mm -hmm. how (laughs) um legit those are but when i was reading those you know thoth is describing like the merkaba and how to travel between like he's actually instructing yeah you on traveling which is so interesting because mercury is also the god of travel Uh um (laughs) so well it's literally like you know teaching you like astral projection and supposedly these are this is wisdom that has come from atlantis and come from from pre-diluvian civilizations ancient wisdom so right thoth he's known as the atlantean right Thoth was initially in his carnation an Atlantean, and he existed in Atlantis and then after. Right, okay? and brought that wisdom with him. And held it because he, you know, I think that everybody knew that that was going to happen. You know, yeah. it's just a part of the cycle, okay? Right. So once the flood happened, he emerged, you know, in many different forms as a shapeshifter mm-hmm. with this wisdom to help sort of get humanity kickstarted back up. Right. Because unlike some of the other gods, Mercury has a soft spot for humans. Hmm. Without Inky, right? Right. Humans would have stayed in that slave kind of like state. You know, Enlil wanted to, was very upset that Inky had given (laughs) humans, you know, that spark, that fire that was going to, you know, light up that spiritual essence within them. And now they can start asking questions and now they can, you know, reason and now that they can think for themselves and now they can change reality and now they can manifest a whole new world. You know, they did. He, was like, I just wanted some some <laughs> slaves to do my stuff. Well, somebody heard that and said, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't want them doing that. We got to slave them back up a little bit. Right. <laughs> That's where it, they they took that knowledge and tried to conceal it back because they some power. does not want us to be quite that uh, enlightened. (laughs) It seems, I'm just saying. So let's talk a little bit about some of the hermetic doctrines and ideas and and things like that. So there is this concept of the Prisca Theologia, and I might be saying that wrong, but, and this is the doctrine that a single true theology exists, that it exists in all religions in that it was given to man in antiquity. So, and this is, I think, what uh, Ficino had noticed, like, oh, wow, this is a continuation. This is the same story. This is happening again. You know, all of these <laughs> beings carry this wisdom. Um, and so this is similar to, like, the Baha'i faith, and it's interesting because the Baha'i and the Muslims um, have their own interpretation of Hermes Trismegistus, and they mm. call him Idris. Ah. Um, and they actually have wisdom. Some of these hermetic, <laughs> you know, uh, hermetic uh, stuff within their own books, yeah. right? So he's acknowledged. Um, and if you think about like the Baha'i, I mean, that's literally what they're doing. They're they're like merging all of these beliefs, and they're saying it's all one. So that's the thing with the <laughs> hermeticism is that it's all about the all, the all. It's unnameable. It's unknowable. Everything's in the all, right? It's there's nothing that's not part of the all. Right. So every small aspect that's created out of the all has the all within it, yet the all is beyond all of that. And, you know, there's all sorts of deities and gods that, you know, could come out of the all, but it's not the all. Right. Because the all is unknowable, it's unnameable, it's unperceivable, but it's fun to study all of the expressions <laughs> and forms because... We are learning and growing and we are evolving ourselves. Right. You know, as we work on the self-mastery, we evolve our consciousness. And when we reincarnate, we, you know, can incarnate in a better place this time. Right. In a higher sphere. I think we're making 
great strides uh, scientifically to prove this exact theory. You look at um, uh, Nassim Haramein and some of the work that he's been doing with, uh, you know, the, the space between things. I don't know exactly what it's called. <laughs> but um, you where know, he's like, the universe is ninety nine point nine 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 percent space. I can hear, yeah. I can hear him say it in my head because yeah. I just love. And thing. the thing is, is on the quantum level, when you get and you look at this quantum physics and stuff, when you get down to the quantum level, there is no dividing line between things. The solid world, the material world that we see and experience, is not truly solid. Mm-hmm. It's not physical. There's huge space between these these atoms and these electrons and neutrons and protons, and they're all rotating around each other, huge distances apart. And there's no border between my arm and this couch. Mm-hmm. If you zoom in, you can't tell where it ends and begins. Right. We're all connected in this field of consciousness, and they're sl- almost to the point of proving it that right. there is no difference between it, and that's the all. Right. And so there can be all sorts of things that exist inside this. There could even be beings that have superpowers that we would call gods, things, you know, things that could manifest things or move objects around or bend reality to their will. But in the end, there's still a part of this grand field that we're all existing in. And that's the all. That's the all. That's the all. And it's, it's that. And honestly, the separateness is Maya. It's a part of the great illusion. Yeah. An illusion. And I think that illusion's necessary because this idea of separateness forces us to work from this individual perspective, which is so cool, because mm-hmm. as humans, you know, evolve, the all evolves, right? right? And humans are sort of, you know, kind of evolving up into gods in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah, in a, a long roundabout way. Right. <laughs> um, all right. Some other things. Uh, with hermeticism is um, what we call the great hermetic confusion. And this confuses people because it's the concept that um, God is monotheistic, polytheistic, and pantheistic. And this throws a lot of people off because they're like, well, how can it be all? Right. And just like we were talking about, well, it's because (laughs) it's all coming from the mind of God. And therefore there's one. Yeah. Or there, there's also many because mm-hmm. there's many manifestations of the all. <laughs> and then the whole pantheistic belief um, that the reality, uh, reality universe and the cosmos are all identical with divinity yeah. in some way. Um, so it's <laughs> when you're thinking about the all, it all becomes relevant. And the cool thing is, is that with this kind of philosophy, it does, it tears down the borders. Yeah. And it's like, well... You know, you're right, and I, I would love to study your thing, too. And here's my thing. And, like, right. we can study this. It's cool that you're polytheistic. It's cool that this person's monotheistic yeah. because it's all expressions of the all. Right. right. The noose, the mind of God, the divine reason of all things, the illuminating idea. You know, it's it's all happening within the noose. Right. I, I think it also helps me a lot with, with fear um, because – it really doesn't matter what you encounter. Um, it's just a different reflection of you. And even if that feels like you've encountered a God, you know, if you were to come across some being or some supernatural force or something um, that's out there and it feels malevolent to you or it, it feels far more powerful than you could ever imagine, ultimately, you know, if you adhere to this belief, it's still just a part of the the all, the grand universe. And, you know, the same way that you and I are the same and we're connected, you and whatever other beings out there are right. connected. If there are aliens uh, above the earth, we are the same as them. We are all a part of it right. all together. And so it, it to me, it helps with a lot of any sort of fear um, because you know, it doesn't matter what's out there or what happens to you. It's all just a part of you in some way. Right. And, you know, this is interesting when thinking back, back to Ficino where he's like, you know, it's this dogma that has gotten in the way because originally it was the all. Mm-hmm. And now we have a dogma which has created division, separation, and actually 
disconnected us from the all. And now we just have this dogma, you know, which is missing the life force yeah. of the all. It's just, it's, it's, they've tried to sever it right. from the all and say that divinity is something outside of you. Right. And this is the whole idea of the Renaissance is a personal relationship mm-hmm. with the divine, that the divine moves through us. And this is a rebirth, right, of stepping away from, okay, the church tells me what to do or some priest tells me what to do. But, like, I have control over mm-hmm. this reality to a certain extent. So does everybody else, you know. And the divine principle exists within me and it exists within you. And then now we can actually all love each other. And You see what I mean? Like, if I when I think about, like, the law of one and things like that, you know, I've studied like some Rudolf Steiner and like he goes into Lemurian Atlantis and stuff like that. And they were very much based around the law of one. Mm-hmm. And that sounds a lot like Hermeticism, doesn't it? Yeah. With the all. And these cultures were able to live in harmony with nature and, and connect to the all. And get, they were literally so tuned in that they were getting these deities were able to interact with them. They were able to see them. Like we can't even see them anymore because we are so disconnected from our spirit. Right. As you said that, it made me think, you know, this concept means that not only are me and you one, but we are the same as everything you see. It is all a field of consciousness and there is no separation. So that would be the trees, the rocks, Mm -hmm. the sticks, everything. And the things that we can't see. Yeah. Because there's so many other planes and realms within the all. Millions and millions and millions of planes that we'll never be able to see. It doesn't make them less real. They're all a part of the all. Right. And if (laughs) if you fully adhered to that, then you would treat all of creation with reverence. Yeah. And so that's where you would come across these these older peoples that you're talking about and like the way they lived and the way they believed because you would treat all of nature and all of creation with this reverence. Right. The same that you'd think, oh, I just got to treat my neighbor that way because we're one. But it's everything. You you treat it all with reverence and you take care of it and, and appreciate it. Right. And at the end of the day, as much as I want to like complain about – the toxicity and division that certain religions have forced upon us. Mm-hmm. Okay, Aquarius rising. <laughs> <laughs> um, thinking about the principle of rhythm, which we'll get into later, that pendulum swing back and forth. Mm-hmm. So at one point, you know, in our human history, we were all the way on that other part of the spectrum, fully immersed into the spiritual world. Mm-hmm. And at this point in history, that pendulum has swung completely opposite polarity over here. And we are so in the material world that most people, they don't even realize that there's other worlds out there. I know. Beyond just, I go to work, you know, I eat McDonald's or I, you know, fast food or whatever. I pick my kid up from school. They're on this wheel. Right. And they're they're so stuck in that material plane, you know, like their desire is, oh, you know, one day I want to get a fancy car. So I'm going to work 20 years to get a Ferrari. And then like, but is that even satisfying? You know, so but because I understand these principles, I know that, okay, we went all the way this way. We went all the way that way. And at some point it's going to have to come back into a balanced state. And so that gives me a little bit of hope. Um you know, that within these extremes, there's actually like a beautiful place of peace in between, mm-hmm. you know, where we have our reason and we, we do have the material plane. The material plane has so much beautiful things that's we can create so much here. But then we'll also have this connection to the spiritual planes, right? What's that middle path? It's the middle path. That's what you're supposed to follow. Right. And I think it's these extremes that help you understand like the importance and value of the middle path more. Mm-hmm. I get you think that's what's happening in the wider political spectrum right now is it's just so polarized in every and swinging well, back and forth so bad to be that way. Right. But it, it helps illuminate how the middle path is by far the way that we you should go. Right. Because both extremes and all polarities are terrible options. So they're right. just too extreme. And that right. I guess that plays out on on every level. Every level hence that it's uh hidden <laughs> knowledge here that 
Right. Because if you, you can get caught up in these extremes, you're more controllable. Right. You know, a religious fanatic can be totally controlled by whatever a priest says. Like if their guru tells them to go harm somebody, they will have to. Or, you know, these political people, like they'll do whatever, mm-hmm. you know, if someone tells them to do that. The, you know what I'm saying? Like it's. And yeah, and they have no. When you are dealing with fanaticism, you are you have lost control. You yeah. are fully, you know, worshiping the the person telling you what to do that's feeding you the ideas and this could be like the news or whatever, you know, like, right. And they will pull you into these fanatical states because that's going to keep you in a really low vibration. Right. And you can't be at peace in a fanatical place because there's always going to be an other. Right. That's, you know, you know, you're the good guy and they're the bad guy. And that's, you know, not really. Well, that's the polarity. Right. And it, it would, you know, the more that you fight against something, the more you're going to create the opposite. The more you're going to create your own resistance. Right. And this is another reason why studying these principles is so valuable. Yeah. Because we can catch ourselves and be like, oh, I'm being led to this extreme. And I don't really want to live in extremes. Yeah. I don't have to respond like this. I'm going to take the peaceful, neutral, middle path. Right. And then your resistance slowly falls away. Right. And you don't have somebody fighting against you as much. Right. And it's like you can rebel when necessary, but you don't always have to. You right. know? <laughs> you, you have to know that you have the power to change what you want to change. And you, you don't fight against the other stuff or live in that vibration of fear and doubt. And, right. And this is something I think Ficino did really well. So rather than attacking, he redefined. Mm-hmm. He started working from the, the inside. He started planting seeds, you know, within the culture and things like that, because he knew he couldn't resist the church. Right. And what's the point? It's just going to create fanaticism. So he was like, let's, you know, let's do it a different way. Yeah. You know, and that's so cool. <laughs> so what happened to the knowledge um, from Facino to now? So... You know, there kind of was this, okay, Renaissance was great. We had all this magic. We had all this literature. Um, and then it kind of died down. Um, and then at the turn of the century, we had a, a sort of new, like, mini Renaissance. Um, and this information came back up again, right? Just in time to in inspire time. the next generation. It's funny how that happens. Right. And so we had people like Helena Blavatsky, um, Carl Jung, um, Manly P. Hall. Well, he's a little after this, but he was inspired by it. Um, oh, okay. Rudolf Steiner. Um, and these people were bringing this wisdom back to the forefront. And it's, you know, it's beautiful. And, and it, you know, it kind of maybe ended after around the stock market crash, I think. Thing. And that's kind of what happens. Like people get depressed and like well, beauty you slip and into all survival that. mode. Right. And that's actually a natural thing. Yeah. That happens. And we know by studying polarity that someone that has these extremes, like, so if you're having a lot of happiness and beauty, it's the pendulum will swing the other way. Yeah. Um, so I feel like we're having enough. I feel like the cycles have sped up. Mm-hmm. Right. So we don't have to wait so long for these things to, to come back around. And I feel like, you know, even right now it's, it's coming back up. Like you can order, this book on Amazon now, like this super secret hidden information that, you know, was withheld from the public for all this time. You had to be an initiate. You had to be, you know, it had to be passed down from a teacher to you, you know, and all that. It All that is not as necessary anymore. You know, we have access to this. So if we're a seeker, we can find it. You know, we don't have to wait multiple lifetimes for a guru to appear. Right. You know, we can start working on ourselves at any point. And that's so cool because, you know, even in that mini Renaissance, you know, maybe you didn't have access to books or whatever. It still might've been more of, okay, the rich people, the elite people that have time to read, you know, not everybody has that space, but now it's like, you know, you can buy the Kabbalion for $5 on Amazon and like sit with it and reread it and meditate on it and, and start implementing these practices. And I feel like that's, yeah, that's a beautiful place to be, too, you know, and people are starting, you know, I'm seeing more art. I'm seeing more people like wanting to write poems and, and things again. So, 
you know, it's just a natural thing. Like we go through dark times and then it's going to be followed by beauty Mm -hmm. and peace and, you know, people wanting to think about like philosophy and wordplay and. Right. I thought it was. All the Venusian stuff. Right, right. I thought it was interesting to find out that the first um, hermetic book that was written and translated um, in the late 1800s, and this was after like four centuries of nothing, mm-hmm. um, it was done by uh, uh, Blavatsky's secretary. Mm-hmm. I thought that was super fascinating. And then just a few years later uh, is when the Kabbalion showed up, which is what we're going to dig into in the next episode. Um, but, uh, I guess we should talk a little about the, the Kabbalion and the author and where it, where it came from and how it just popped up. Okay. So when you buy the book, the Kabbalion, it's going to say that it's, you know, by the three initiates. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, I just was like, okay, don't really know who the author of this is. Um, and then one day I was watching, uh, Mitch Horowitz talk about the Kabbalion and he has, he has so much information on, this book um he has i don't know if he made the documentary by himself he might have worked with other people but there is a documentary that he helped produce mm-hmm. on the Kabbalion. and you know he's done a lot of research and has proved that it was definitely authored by william walker atkinson and it was done solo okay okay i i personally think he might have been channeling the records a little bit just because of the language that he's using is very similar um and he was studying a lot of this wisdom and the records are in every culture, you know, like every wisdom cult around the world knows what their cosmic records are. Right. Um, so I think he, he was probably consulting them. You know, he was probably inspired by studying, you know, some of these hermetic texts and then went on to write this. He, I think, you know, he wrote many books. I, I don't know the exact number, but he was a huge person in like the thought movement so like now we have you know the secret or like the tony robinson or like joe dispenza (laughs) and all this and and if you want to go back they probably all read the kabbalion or they've studied you know hermeticism right um which is all comes back into the mind you know it's all in the mind it's all in the mind you Um, know and that there's power there so he really brought this back up and the cool thing is is he's not just sharing the axioms which are very important but he's also kind of helping interpret them in like layman's terms and i think a lot of times when we study these things because it's so encoded it just feels like you know i'm never gonna get this you know i don't understand what this means and so he has that axiom there he has the principle and then he's gonna give you some really like you know, tangible, um, wisdom to help explain that in in a deeper way, which is really cool. Um, so he was a lawyer, but in his free time, you know, he was, um, an occultist and he had his own, um, publishing company and yeah, he brought a lot of this kind of wisdom, um, forward. He, like, I think there's the book, the arcane teachings, which has, you know, four books within it. And a lot of it is just based around mentalism and, um, the astral planes and and things like that. I mean, it's it's really cool to study him. I haven't fully um, immersed myself into him. I've mostly been focusing on the Kabbalion, but um, he's a really cool figure and worthy of some, you know, exploration um, and like a deeper analysis of his work. Definitely. I mean, just just this book alone, um, it feels like it is a, an ancient work that was rediscovered um, more than just something that he wrote himself, which I guess is why you would think that the records were involved because it just doesn't seem like something that this right. guy just well, the, He wrote. obviously didn't come up with the hermetic principles on his own. Right, yeah. But I think what he authored was the analysis of each of them. That's the thing that he wrote. Yeah. Um, and he brought the principles forward mm-hmm. um, to where almost everybody's heard of as above, so below. You right. know, it's, it's kind of everywhere. But like, the thing is, is that when you're studying someone like Joe Dispenza, you're going to get all the cool 
um, the magic of it, but you're not going to know where it came from. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's just focused mostly on the mentalism aspect. Right. So this is really cool because you can go all the way back and study all the principles all together and then utilize them as needed. I think that helps provide a better understanding of them anyway, because, you know, as above, so below is, it's pretty and poetic and like you can kind of understand it, but without some of the other ones and it all going together and doing further elaboration, uh, it just feels a little empty and it certainly isn't going to impact your life the way that it could, you know, if you fully understand all right, of the principles. Then if you, if you really understand it, <laughs> Because it's the all, you'll see it in all things. Right. You'll see it in all actions. You'll see it in all thought. I mean, it's it's literally like everywhere, which is really cool. But you have to be pretty grounded in the principles before you can start seeing them out in the real world. So let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Okay. Um, and get started on the next episode where oh. we will go over each of the principles individually and just talk about how you know we've been able to work with these principles in our lives that sounds good I'm, I'm excited for it all right well thank you so much for joining me yeah absolutely thanks for having me on here i get excited every time and more and more comfortable being your guest on here <laughs> yes yes thank you and thank you all for tuning in check us out next time on the astral hour